from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Karen Jaffe, head of the Young Reader Center at the Library of Congress. Saturday, September 24th, will mark the 16th year that book lovers of all ages gather in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival, which is free and open to the public. It will be held at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C. Hours will be from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., and for more details, visit www.loc.gov slash bookfest. And now it's my pleasure to introduce my friend and author, Meg Medina, whose latest book is titled Burn, Baby, Burn. Meg Medina is an award-winning Cuban-American author who writes picture books, middle grade, and YA fiction. She's the 216 recipient of the Pura Belpre Honor Medal for her picture book, Mango, Abuela, and Me, and the 214th Pura Belpre winner for her young adult novel, Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass, which was also the winner of the 213 Sybils Fiction Award and the International Latino Book Award. She is also the 212 Ezra Jack Keats New Writers Medal winner for her picture book, Tia Iza Wants a Car. Meg's other books are The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind, a 212 Bank Street Best Book in the CBI Recommended Read in the UK, and Milagros Girl from Away. Meg, you are not a stranger to the Library of Congress. You've no. been to our book festival before and many times to the Young Reader Center. The last time you visited us, you met with our teen board and you talked about Burn Baby Burn which is so popular that we cannot keep it anywhere um, <laughs> because we have a, we had the author's review copy before the book came out and the teen board took it over. So uh, it's been really wonderful. So my question is, I understand from your comments to us when you visited that you use the Library of Congress a lot in your work and particularly with this book. So i just like for you to share some of those examples and ideas and how you've actually used the library. Yeah, so um, I do love the Library of Congress. Um, I love, of course, the Jefferson Building, which is so spectacular to walk through and visit. And I'm always surprised when um, folks say they've been to D.C. and they haven't been to the Library of Congress because it is so stunning. So that's my first recommendation to any tourist who, who would be coming our way to make sure they go to the Jefferson Building. But across the street is really where the action is in terms of research. So um, when I was writing Burn, Baby, Burn, it is set in New York City in 1977. I was a, a child then. I was 13 years old um, that year. And my protagonist was, was older. Uh, Nora Lopez is 18 in this novel. And there were just so many things going on in the city. The city was bankrupt. It was a serial killer. There were many issues around race relations. Entire neighborhoods were burning. Um, you know, it was just a very rich time. And then, you know, of course, there was a, a blackout, which just 
threw New York into a long period of soul-searching in terms of what had happened during that blackout and um, with all the looting and people turning on, on one another, etc. Anyway, the interesting part is that it's one thing to remember when you're writing historical fiction, but that's just not enough. Your memories, I think, bring you to the emotional truth of the novel, but then you actually have to put in the hard work of the research. It's finding the things that you don't remember, you rem- remember incorrectly, digging for the things that weren't necessarily in the um, record. So I live in Richmond, Virginia, and I had very limited access to going, uh, being able to get to, you know, the daily news um, uh, those back issues then and getting, being able to really get some, some opportunity to sit with all of the magazines like Ms. Magazine from the 70s and, and have that all at my disposal. Um, and I tried to do it locally, um, but some things you just have to take a trip up 95 and get to the library. So um, it's kind of a very a special experience because you have to get this special card and you fill out an application, you get photographed. And and I felt like I was sort of coming into a special uh, community of historians, people really looking into the corners of, of different aspects of American history. And what I found at the Library of Congress is just this wonderful resource. I, every time I had a question or stumbled when I couldn't find a particularly well-hidden fact, I had a librarian at my disposal that could um, point me in the right direction. Um, I watched a lot of microfiche and film. Um, and it was really lovely, actually, to be sitting in the nation's capital in this really historic building trying to connect myself to my personal history and to this history that I was going to um, voice in this novel. So I carry this card with great pride. (laughs) I really love having it. And it's part of my arsenal now whenever I really want to find something that's difficult to find in, in my local library, even in my university library, I turn to the Library of Congress. It seems to me that one of the things, one of the many things that makes this book so rich is the validity of the material, the primary sources that you have utilized and which resonate with people like me who remembers those times as well, but also is realistic for young people because they can appreciate some of this information and the fact that it was the real deal in a way. I mean, the Berkowitz, you know, really happened, Mm -hmm. and although you don't use his name. And so I'm wondering what happens when you go around the country and you meet other young people who are reading your book or have read your book or are listening to you tell them about your book. What are the sort of overarching either questions or comments that have been the takeaway for you? Well, you know, what's interesting is that it was a challenge thinking about how to write the 70s in a way that would seem fresh and appealing 
to a teenager. And I, I always say, I mean, just think of the matching his and her jumpsuits that we wore and just other hideous things that would make, and this is the time period of their parents, right? So it would be very easy for a teen to say, oh, please, that's the last thing I want to read. Except that so many of the challenges that New Yorkers were facing that year are actually the challenges I think the kids are wrestling with now. So we were looking at a city on the brink, race relations crumbling, violence, the feeling that there was impending violence. In in New York's case, it was sort of zeroed in on one man, but in terms of, of the serial killer, but certainly crime was at an all-time high in New York at that time. Um, you had this feeling that, that there was no hope, that everything was just going to crumble in this city. And it didn't crumble. And New York found a way to sort of find its soul and um, find a way out. And it went through a long period of, of economic stability and so on. And we can certainly go back and forth in terms of has it all been entirely good for all New Yorkers and not there are really good arguments to be made in either way. But New York had to face this notion of its own decay. And what's very interesting to me is that that was the year that New York launched the I Love New York campaign. Crazy, right? Like, who loved New York then? Nobody. But Milton Glaser did the um, that iconic logo, the the red, um, you know, eye with the heart and NY. And it's become the most successful marketing campaign um, in history. But I think, I used to just scoff at that and think, oh, how ridiculous, right? It was just a, a complete marketing of a city that was a shell of itself. But I think the genius of Milton Glaser in that particular ad campaign is that with those little four marks on a white background, he was really asking New Yorkers, do you love New York? If you do, what are you willing to do to step forward to save it? And I think when I look at kids now and I look at the violence that is happening now, whether it's um, violence uh, of young men at the hands of police or violence against police, um, again, the difficulties, the enduring difficulties of race relations and the added burden of things like sniper drills and shooter drills, things that I wouldn't have imagined when I was 13 years old. I think kids today have a lot to think about in terms of violence, in how they find their personal power to turn that around, in what their reaction is going to be in the face of violence all around. And I, I think the last two weeks, certainly, we've been grappling with that as a nation, but I think young people have a lot to say about it and a lot that they live through on a daily basis that has to do with violence. Your book is pretty gritty in many ways, and you, you've you said it. I mean, you, you led into my next question, which is how different or how prescient, in a way, is your book about the 70s when when we look at the co- the media coverage of, of what we've been experiencing. Yeah. And go ahead. Well, you know, I'm thinking about that, and, I'm, I, and I, 
it's, you know, as I said, I, I just think, for example, like we have so many conversations right now about intersectional um, feminism, right? What does it mean to be feminist or pro-woman today versus what it meant in 1977? So I really like that kids have a way to talk about that topic. First of all, to know that so many of the things that are available to young women right now were fought for really hard by the women in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But I think it's really interesting that I laid in in the early 70s, there were some of the same questions that come up now. Like, how does my identity in other ways besides being a woman impact my feminism? How does that change how I move through the world or what I think about this movement? Does this movement include me? Um, So I think that I give kids a chance to see the seeds of things and also just, you know, it, it's always remarkable to me how history, it's a, it sounds so cliche, but how history repeats itself. We seem to be, you know, we, we struggle with the same human frailties, with the same difficulties, more modern spins, but there they are at the root, very similar. So I like that. I like that kids can connect and really see history as something that's, um, that's relevant to them, exciting. Sometimes I think we present history, especially when we're talking about history, you know, uh, further back, that we think of it in terms of wars and dates and eventually like names of, of agreements and, uh, that, that mean less and less to kids over time. So it's kind of exciting to create this work that's historical fiction that's more contemporary, that is within their reach, that they have a way to interact with history in a way that feels personal and sort of gives them a model for thinking about how history works in the lives of people. Some of your work has brought out some controversy, in particularly kick your ass, uh, was uncomfortable for some librarians and teachers. And I'm wondering, this book is different, certainly because, A, it's really based on history, but also because you're really expressing, even though there's sexuality in the book and there's certainly a lot of violence, you're expressing the way young people are feeling about this. Have you had any pushback at all from adults who get uncomfortable by some of this? Well, you know, what's interesting is that typically the pushback, with Yaki Delgado wants to kick your ass, for example, it was very vocal. You know, the word ass on the cover just set people's hair on fire in some some cases. But with this... um, no one has come forward directly and said, you know, I'm uncomfortable that the girls are talking about Planned Parenthood. I'm uncomfortable that they're considering, uh, you know, having sex with their boyfriends, etc. But what usually happens with my books is that they get uh, victimized by soft censorship. You know, the um, librarians will decide that my book is like good for a certain kind of girl, whatever that is, or a certain kind of reader, or you need to be a certain age to get it, or you need to bring up 
parental note to read the book, etc. So, so far, no public dust-ups, which gives me great comfort, but I'm not really, wait- I'm not really confident that that will hold, <laughs> because um, this was the 1970s. It was such a time of upheaval and redefinition of roles, and um, young women, especially thinking about who they were sexually, who they were in relationship, how to keep themselves safe. And the conversations we were having did include things about sexuality and and birth control and so on. And um, for some people, it's difficult for them to feel like teenagers ought to be reading about those things. They want to, you know, protect them or, um, you know, they worry that there's a particular point of view in the book. What I really try to put out in the book among with all of the characters are the sort of shades of of points of view about all of it. The women's movement has never been a one-size-fits-all thing. Um, it's always been a struggle to incorporate how everyone feels. So what did a feminist in 1977 who was a Catholic, what did that look like versus someone who wasn't? So... Those intersections, I think, are interesting. Well, everyone who has a chance, line up early. Meg Medina will be at the National Book Festival in the Teen Pavilion on September 24th at the Washington Convention Center. So, as I said, line up early to get in. There'll be a big crowd And Meg, thank you for talking with us, and I look forward to seeing you in September. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Karen. See you at the library. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.